First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The letter opened with Paul calling on Timothy to defend the faith and confront false teachers. That happened in verses 1 through 11. Now Paul defines the true minister in verses 12 through 17. Paul appeals to his own commission and conversion as an example of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love in verse 14, and then again in verse 16. Paul wants Timothy to know that in spite of the critics who may question Timothy's maturity or find that his ability is suspect, Paul wants to remind him that it is God who has called him into the ministry. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has placed him in the ministry. And Paul draws on his own testimony to provide a sharp contrast between the false teachers and himself. Most of you realize that Paul used to be Saul. He describes himself as a former blasphemer and an insolent man. He was bent on persecuting the saints, and yet God in Christ transformed him and changed him. This should cause you to pause right at this very moment and ask this question. How does a person go from murderer to missionary? How is that even possible? And then we have to say, how is this done? He's, in this short section, Paul tells us, he says, look what God did in verse 12, in verse 14, and 15. When God did it, that's verse 13. Why God did it. That's verses 16 and 17. So what did God do? He selected Paul. 
and saved Paul. When did God do it? When he was a sinner. When he was Saul and not Paul. When he was violent. When he was insolent. And by that way, that that word insolent means injurious. A blasphemer and a persecutor of Christians. So why in the world would God save him? What's going on? And again, you should ask the question, yes, why would God save him? But it should prompt you to ask another question, why should God save me? Now, I'm sure we could come up with a lengthy list for you. We could come up with lots of reasons. But Paul offers this explanation for himself to provide a pattern. God is willing to use Paul as an example of what God is willing to do, of what God is willing to demonstrate, how God is willing to manifest his amazing love and exercise overwhelming and super abundant grace, not in the best person, but in the worst person. Paul has already condemned false teachers who teach false doctrine in verse 3, fabricate fables in verse 4, generate disputes in verse 4, pervert the law of Moses in verse 7. Paul insists that Timothy promote sound doctrine and now he's going to offer his own testimony as an illustration of the lawful use of the law. What is God willing to do for lost sinners? He's willing to save them. He's willing to save them. In verse 15 we find the first of what Paul refers to as faithful sayings that are worthy to be believed and should be embraced by all. He's going to use that faithful saying expression again in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 9, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. And then he's going to also use that expression in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. It's only used in these general epistles to Timothy and Titus. So Paul points to himself like this vibrant stained glass window where the colors of mercy and the colors of grace and the vibrant color of love comes alive. Sinners can be saved. Even false teachers or misguided teachers can be placed back on the glorious gospel path. Paul wants to offer Timothy guidance and encouragement and dare I say it out loud, inspiration, even inspiration. So we're placed in service by the Lord Jesus. Look what it says in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This exclamation of thanks and gratitude. And he says, I want to thank Jesus who enabled me, who counted me faithful, 
and who put me in the ministry. So he offers himself as one who's been enabled by grace and love and mercy to serve effectively as Christ's servant. And in verse 12, I want to draw your attention to the last word in that text, ministry. The reason why, it's the Greek word diakona or diakonia. It's in the noun sense. It means a servant. So he's not just simply talking about putting me into this vague thing called the ministry. He's talking about service. He's talking about he's made me a servant in service. I want you to connect those two dots. A servant in service. So Paul, remember, talked about his calling and credentials in verse 1. And service is given to him by the Lord Jesus in verse 12. So Paul isn't a self-appointed leader. He isn't even someone who said, look, I want to be in the ministry. He is a person who's making the claim, no, Jesus has placed me in the ministry. Paul didn't participate in ministry as a logical career path. He didn't take a personality assessment test that says, hey, you know what? You scored really high on the religious portion. When I went into the police department and I was being tasked with being the chaplain for the city of Chino Police Department, I had to take a test called the MMPI, which is a, which is a personality test that law enforcement agencies use to make sure that you're not crazy. And so the person who conducted the test went to the chief and said, Gino Geraci has scored off the charts in this religion category. He believes that there's a real God and, and, and the Bible's true. And the, the chief said, are we going to punish the chaplain because he actually believes in, in, the, in religion? Paul is called, commissioned, credentialed, and then placed in ministry by Jesus. The word translated enabled is a compound word. It's a word that means to strengthen by imparting power. In this case, the power comes from Jesus. Now, the reason why this is important for you is that this is a power that isn't self-generated. In other words, he's, this isn't self-talk or heart talk. This isn't the kind of power that says, look, if I can just think hard enough and long enough, and I, I, can, I can generate enough enthusiasm for the ministry. No, this is not self-generated. This is not something artificial or superficial. This isn't something emotional or personal. Now, when I use the term personal, I mean in the sense of self-generated. The enabling isn't coming from Paul. Paul will use the exact same term and word in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Most of you know it. I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens, same word, strengthens me, enables me, empowers me. I can do all things through the Jesus who's filling me with the sufficiency in order to do what he's asked me to do. Jesus places Paul in the ministry and then strengthens or enables Paul for that ministry. The self-appointed minister is doomed to failure. The person who decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to become a pastor and I'm just going to come to this pulpit every single week and I'm just going to wing it and tell you whatever comes into my mind, they will fail. That person will fail. The person who can do anything else should do something else. But for the person who's called and credentialed and placed by Jesus in the position that you've called, that God has called you to, then you should exercise all of the grace and the mercy and the love and the comfort and the hope that's been made available to you. The minister Jesus selects and empowers can expect sufficient enabling, sufficient strength, sufficient power, can self-appointed ministers accomplish good things? I think that the answer is perhaps. But the true minister has to have a keen sense of his or her calling. A keen sense of his or her enabling. That this calling and enabling is coming from Jesus himself. And that Jesus is the one who places Paul in the service. So the expression because he counted me faithful or judged me faithful translates a single Greek word, hege, sato. It means after careful consideration. Now, I want you to understand what that means. After careful consideration. This is a word that's less judicial. In other words, it isn't a judicial word that is an examination of the facts and after examining all of the facts, I'm rendering the judgment that this person should be in ministry. It's more relationship oriented. And what do I mean by that? Paul doesn't think that he's earned God's favor by being a sincere sinner or a misguided sinner but that even in his call and commission and enabling, it's God's grace. Paul doesn't rationalize or glorify his rebellion and disobedience. Paul is placed in the ministry. He's enabled in the ministry. He's given a sovereign calling by God. This might come as a surprise to you, but I want to, again, draw attention to one word. He counted me faithful. In other words, it isn't Paul's faithfulness that's most impressive. The thing that is most impressive is God. He counted me faithful. What do I mean by that? It doesn't matter 
what anyone else thinks if God thinks that you're called and that God credentials you and that God enables you and that God gives you this ability to work with people in love. You know how you can tell a real teacher? People will be taught. Do you know how you can tell someone who's a real encouragement? That when you're with them, you're encouraged. You know how you can tell when a person is really called? It's when in tears they tell you that it doesn't have to end badly for you. That God in his grace and his mercy is willing to put you on a different path. And so in verse 13, Paul writes, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Some might think that Paul is self-serving in his description, faithful. Remember, he's writing the words, he called me faithful. And people go, well, what about your past? Look at who you used to be. You were a person who hated Christians and tormented Christians. You isolated them. You arrested them. Some of them you tortured. It looks like you even killed some of them. Paul is quickly reminding everyone who's hearing Timothy read this letter out loud that there's not much difference between his former self, and the false teachers that he's just condemned. Paul makes it clear that he himself is a former blasphemer. And I got to tell you something, that's a very strong word coming out of Paul's mouth. This is not a word that he's going to use flippantly, superficially, or in an exaggerated way. Coming from an observant Jewish perspective, Paul describes himself regarding the law blameless, he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he says, blameless. So what in the world is he saying? And why is he saying it about himself? Can we exaggerate or sensationalize or glorify our sinful past? I think that that's possible. But the Bible also says it's possible to be honest. Not in order to bring glory to ourselves or even to bring glory to the past. It's to glorify God and then point to his amazing grace and his amazing love and his amazing mercy. The New Testament paints this horrific picture of Saul prior to his conversion. We first find Saul holding the coats of an infuriated mob. You know what they're doing? They're stoning Stephen to death. Stephen is defending the gospel, declaring the truth to the religious leaders. Saul gives his approval to Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 
Quote, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women. He put them in prison, Acts 8, verse 3. Quote, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him in, in the synagogues in da Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Paul himself said, quote, I persecuted this way to the death, binding, delivering them into prison, both men and women, Acts 22, verse 4, quote, and I punished them in every synagogue. I compelled them to blaspheme being exceedingly enraged. He was an angry man. I persecuted them. Even unto foreign cities, he says in Acts chapter 26, verse 11. In other words, I wasn't content just to persecute them on my block or in my city or in my community. I went out of my way to hurt them. Acts 26, 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Galatians 1, 13, I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. Now here, here's the deal. Jesus said that even the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, the culture in which you live with can hound you and pound you. Christianity is stupid. Christians are stupid. This gospel nonsense is stupid. Believing that a person could actually rise from the dead, that's idiotic. What kind of a person believes in a substitutionary atonement where a person dies for the transgressions and sins of another in order to make a person whole? So what, what does this former blasphemer say about himself? I was a blasphemer. What in the world could that possibly mean? It means a person who uses all available means to make Christians renounce their faith, renounce their Lord, renounce the gospel, and then subjects them to persecution. But the greatest part of the blasphemy lies in the person who says, Jesus isn't who he says he is. Or the New Testament misrepresents him. The reason why he can call himself a blasphemer is because he was injurious towards Jesus. He didn't believe what Jesus said about himself. He didn't believe what the disciples said about Jesus. And so he hurt people. To make them say what he wanted to hear. No observant Jew would ever 
intentionally speak evil of God or slander God. But Paul realizes his vicious attack on the person of Jesus and on the saints was an actual attack on the true and the living God. And so Paul sees himself in light of God's law. He broke the first half of the Decalogue. He broke the last half of the Decalogue. You know, it's one thing to break a commandment. It's another thing to break every single one of them. And some people might think, well, that's quite a large statement. How can you be sure that he broke every law? Because the Bible says if you're guilty in one, you're guilty in all. And the word insolent means violent aggressor. It's the Greek word hybristis. It's used only here in the Bible, the New Testament. And again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, where the word is translated despiteful, the word hybristis suggests someone who is bloated with pride and arrogance, who heaps insults on others, who engages in shameful and injurious and spiteful acts. I saw a t-shirt of this guy walking with his dog and his beautiful wife on a beautiful day. And on his t-shirt it said, mess with me, I will draw blood. Now yeah, you go, you go real, and he looked like he could, I mean he looked like a cross between Arnold Schwarzenegger, only about six inches taller. He looked like that guy who goes, you know, I could kill you if I want to. And, and you look at it and you actually believe it. But that's the point. It's bloated with pride. Paul demonstrates his humility by the admission of guilt prior to his conversion and transformation. Paul was not a Jewish apostate who rejected the teachings of the Pharisees or the law of Moses. Paul was a Jew doing what he thought every zealous Jew should do. Not only to protect what belonged to him, but to preserve what he believed to be true. By his own admission, he's lost and damned apart from Christ. Paul's claim of ignorance isn't a claim of innocence. He said, I was ignorant. Ignorant is different from innocent. You've probably done things ignorantly, stupidly, foolishly. It didn't make you innocent. Paul's claim of ignorance doesn't lessen, and it certainly doesn't eliminate guilt. Paul admits he didn't believe, he didn't understand, he didn't embrace the true identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And, and so Paul is honestly trying to defend his worldview, and he claims ignorance, but he also doesn't claim that his ignorance exonerates him. 
or that his ignorance in any way lessened the heartache and the heartbreak that was generated by his wickedness. He truly thought he was doing God a service. But his memories of blasphemy and injury and persecution doesn't paralyze him or overwhelm him in what way? Because clearly memories of sin and rebellion can come back and haunt us. We live in a world where we remember what we've done and we remember who we did it to and we remember the pain and the heartache and the difficulty that it caused and we wonder if there really is grace and mercy and forgiveness and that's available to us you might be caught up in that world where you think how could God possibly forgive me how could God possibly wash me and cleanse me how is it even possible I tell you guys over the last 28 years how in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. Not to get a laugh. But I was that person. I was the person that your parents warned you about. I was the person where when you would go home and people would question your, your mom and dad would question your judgment and say, you know, it's probably not a good idea to be hanging out with Gino Geraci. People who hang out with him usually wind up in jail or in trouble. Paul knows. Paul knows what it's like to be the person who has to live with what he's done. But look how he handles it. Look what he does. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. By the way, prior to Paul's use of that word exceedingly abundant, it didn't exist in the Greek language. Do you know what he does? He literally makes up a new word in order to describe what God has done. It's, it's, a, it's a word, it's a compound word with a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. It's a word that means super abundant, overflowing abundant. And the grace of our Lord was over super abundant. We're given this massive dose of grace, a massive dose, dose of faith, a massive dose of love in Christ Jesus. This is a super abundant provision which becomes our medicine. It's the thing that cures us. This is the cure for the sinful condition. This is the cure for the guilty past. This is the cure for ongoing failure. This is not grace or faith or love that's apart from Jesus, that's absent Jesus. If I could be so bold, I know that in the popular culture and in the society in which we live, 
your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends, the unbelieving culture, they, they use the word grace and they use the word faith and they use the word love, but there really is no such thing as grace and mercy and love apart from Jesus, at least not in the way that Paul's talking about it in this passage. There's love that your mom and dad may or may not have had for you. There's love that I can almost guarantee your grandma and grandpa had for you. There's a kind of love that exists in the world, but it doesn't even begin to describe God's love or God's grace or God's mercy. Again, this isn't grace or faith or love apart from Jesus. This is the grace and faith and love that's found in Jesus. This is the grace and faith and love that turns Saul into Paul. This is the grace and love and mercy that turns you away from who you used to be into something that apart from Jesus, you could never be saved, washed, cleansed, forgiven. The words aren't abstract. They're concrete in their expression in the gospel. These are the things, by the way, that motivate Paul in ministry. These are his motivators. Exceedingly abundant grace and faith and love. The true minister is motivated by these things. It can't be money. It can't be prestige. It can't be all of the things that give us our security and identity in the popular culture. But if you are motivated with super abundant grace and faith and love, you're going to be fine. The true minister is motivated by grace. What kind of grace? Saving grace, serving grace, sufficient grace. This is the grace that's in Jesus. It's saving grace, Ephesians 2.5. We stand in grace, Paul says in Romans 5.2. John wrote, of his fullness we've all received grace for grace. That's John chapter 1 verse 16. It's John the Apostle's way of saying grace piled on top of grace, piled on top of grace. Do you remember when you were kids with maybe your brothers and sisters and the neighborhood kids, you would play pile on? And God helped the person who was at the bottom of the pile. But this is what he's talking about. He's talking about a piling on. It's endless. We're elected by grace. We're strengthened by grace. We grow in grace. Simply put, grace is God's loving forgiveness by which God grants salvation apart from any personal merit on the part of those that he chooses to save and that he has in fact saved. He saves them with Faith, he saves them by grace. Paul crams in this single sentence 
all the elements of salvation. Grace with faith. Faith that includes a voluntary and sincere change of mind by the sinner. That is, it causes the sinner to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. We call that repentance. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. We're justified by faith, Romans 5.1. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 writes, quote, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. It's a faith and a grace and a mercy and a love that's motivated and generated by Jesus and witnessed by the Father in heaven and hopefully by the people on the earth. So how do you experience this wondrous transformation how do you go from murderer to missionary? How do you go from sinner to saint? How do you go from religion to relationship? The law? No. Good works? No. A thriving Ministry that's known and uh, appreciated and evaluated by everyone in the world? No. It's Jesus. It's grace. It's faith with love. Later, Paul will command Timothy in chapter 6, verse 12, you should fight the good fight of faith. You should lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's the kind of change and transformation where not only do people look at you and they go, there's something different, something, what happened to you? Something has happened to you. And then you're willing to confess that. You know what? Something has happened to me. I've given my life to Christ. Wait a minute. I know you. I know what you've done. God knows what I've done. And guess what? You only know the half of what I've done. I can't even risk telling you the other half. The grace of God is working in him enabling him to serve God. And so we're pardoned as a pattern. Look what Paul says in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. There are three more faithful sayings. This is a faithful saying. He'll use that same expression in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 9. Later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, and like I said in Titus, the expression seems to be a summary of key doctrines, well-known sayings by the early saints, known to the church, accepted by all, without dispute, 
when he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. It's his way of saying if there's anything in the whole wide world that we should be able to agree on, it's this. I would go one step further. And if you don't agree, if you can't agree, then yours is a deficient understanding of what I'm trying to say about the gospel. It's deficient. Does this mean when Paul's self-designation, when he says, I am chief, does, does that mean he's the worst person who's ever lived? No. It literally translates the word ranked first. So when it says that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pause. That's the saying. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pause again. Not to make you a better person. Now don't get me wrong. I think being saved will consequentially make you a better person. But Jesus doesn't come into the world to make you a better person. He doesn't, he doesn't come into the world so that you can go, wow, now that you're a Christian, I couldn't help but notice that you're a better person. No, he comes into the world to save sinners. And when Paul says, of whom I am chief, he's, he's basically saying, ranked first in what sense? The point seems to be the reference that he's already made in the chapter. Paul's designation means that it's a point of reference in relationship to Jews and God's salvation, I think, to the Jewish nation. I suspect Paul is hinting that his conversion is a type and a picture and a pattern to the Jew first, to the Gentile second, in what sense the Lord Jesus came in the world, into the world to save sinners, the Jew first, the Gentile second. Paul speaks of himself as one born out of time in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, in the sense that he sees Jesus and understands Jesus in what we might call a sense that is premature, like a premature birth, like a, a, a child who hasn't come to full term. William MacDonald calls this, quote, born again prior to the rebirth of his people, Israel, just as he was saved by a direct revelation from heaven and apart from human instruction, so perhaps in the same way the Jewish remnant will be saved during the tribulation period, this interpretation seems to be borne out by the words first and pattern that's used in verse 16. So pause for a moment and think about his conversion. Remember, he's on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. Jesus appears in the sky and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Now, he's, he's hurting Jesus' people. When Jesus returns, 
I suspect people are going to see the resurrected Jesus coming in glory. The Bible says in Zechariah, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. I suspect that it's going to be like Genesis when Joseph reveals to his brothers, I am he who you were persecuting, who you imprisoned. And all of a sudden their hearts break and they weep in an uncontainable expression of grief. Somebody might say, well, it's because they're found out. Maybe. Is it because the truth is now known? I hope so. I don't disagree with McDonald's insight, but I don't see any reason to restrict the insight to the salvation of the Jewish people. Does Paul's conversion mean something to the non-Jew? Paul's a violent man. He's a murderer by his own admission. But the change that takes place isn't a change because he decided to become a better person or to keep the law. He's changed by superabundant grace. He's changed by faith. He's changed by love. These are the things that, that will make it possible to change. Paul offers his own experience as proof that the gospel's for sinners. He offers his testimony as proof that it isn't for religious people or people who claim to be good enough. In verse 16, it says, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What is Paul saying? For this reason, I obtained mercy. Why in the world should anyone believe in Jesus? Paul argues you should believe because it's true. Paul argues you should believe because God sent Jesus and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's alive. You should believe it. You should believe it because it's true. You should believe it because he saves sinners. And so Paul's conversion has the effect of prompting others to believe. Wait a minute, what are you saying? I'm saying that if Jesus can save somebody like me, he can save somebody like you. Oh, but you don't understand just how bad I am. I don't think I need to know. <laughs> because this is a faithful saying. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm no sinner. Then guess what? He can't save you. I'm fine. Of course you are. Of course you are. By the way, if you believe like Paul believed, are you going to see a light? Are you going to get a vision of Jesus? Are you going to hear a voice? 
Not necessarily. Because we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. We're saved by grace through faith in spite of our sin. We're saved by grace through faith in spite of our sin because of his love. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, The people of Israel will be saved one day in the future as Paul was saved on the Damascus road. They will see Christ. They will repent. They will believe. They will be changed, unquote. So Paul contrasts his own testimony with the premise and the promise of the false teachers. Their premise, you got to keep the law. Their promise, if you do, God will accept you. Paul says, no. God will only accept you in Christ. Because Paul points to a gospel that saves sinners. So how do we obtain this salvation? It's grace. It's love. It's mercy. By faith, we believe. And look what Paul does. In verse 17, we're praising the Savior. Verse 17, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the ancient world, it wasn't unusual for people to praise their gods by providing a list of titles and attributes. So what does God's call to the minister produce? A profound expression of gratitude to God for his faithfulness. We begin to sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. He praises the Lord. Paul praises the Lord for what the Lord has done. This verse belongs in the category of what theologians called a doxology. Doxa means glory and logia is the study of glory. So here, doxology means an expression of glory, we're hard pressed to know if Paul is singing to Jesus or God or singing to Jesus as God. Jesus is the king eternal and immortal. For the time being invisible because you don't see him right now. In this context, some Bible teachers think that this is a, a reference to the invisible God in the sense of the pleroma, the fullness of God. In other words, this is an expression of everything that God is and how words cease to communicate the fullness of all of the attributes of the Godhead. The very fact that Paul refuses to distinguish which person in the Godhead is being referenced, some people have suggested argues against the deity of Jesus, but I think it argues for exactly the opposite. That everything that is true of the Father is true of the Son and true of the Spirit. These words magnify the Lord. He's eternal. He's immortal. He is invisible. All honor belongs to him. Trust in him at all times, it says in Psalm 42, 8. Is it possible that you could give God too much praise? The answer seems to be no. Augustine wrote, quote, man's chief work is the praise of God. 
unquote. Francis Schaeffer used to tell his students, one day all Christians will join in a doxology and sing God's praises and perfection. But even today, he wrote, individually and corporately, we're not only to sing the doxology, but we're to become the doxology. In other words, we become the very instrument where we can't help but say, no unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Paul's placed in ministry. He's empowered in that ministry. He's pardoned for that ministry. The true minister is placed by Jesus, empowered by Jesus, and then pardoned by Jesus. So Paul is going to challenge and remind Timothy that this same Jesus who placed Paul in the ministry placed Timothy in the ministry. This same Jesus who saved me saves you. And we praise him. We praise him. We praise him for what he's done in my life. And then we praise him for what he's done in your life. So what is your place in the ministry? What is your power for the ministry? What is your testimony concerning the ministry? Is it pardon? Does it include praise? We used to sing. Now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, how could we not praise you for what you've done? And so, Lord, again, as we look at this portrait of the true minister, as we see the colors bright with grace, bright with mercy, bright and vibrant in various shades of love, we begin to see, Lord, what it means to be men and women who will love you and honor you, love one another, and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.